good afternoon. Thank you very much for coming here on a day with a heat index of 105. Uh, and we're pleased to have Ed Calabrese here. I need to do a little uh, shameless self-promoting uh, about the Center for the Study of Science. We're working on what we hope to be a definitive book on systematic corruption in science. And Ed is one of the authors. He's going to talk about in the book about what he's going to talk about today, which is how an obviously wrong scientific standard for regulation of carcinogens and ionizing radiation, and that's a lot of stuff that gets regulated, that it is demonstrably wrong, and uh, the formation of the concept uh, entails just a little bit of perfidy, to say the least. But I'd like to just read a quote from our brilliant um, Trevor Burris, who has written a chapter for this book on drugs, particularly marijuana and MDMA. Uh, he's quoting a neuropharmacologist in the United Kingdom who talks about the process impeding scientific research, and governments do impede scientific research that they don't want done. Quote, scientists examining the health and social impacts of drugs are usually funded by government agencies, and they often highlight the negative effects of drugs to justify their own source of funding. If a scientist can show that a drug is harmful, then they can show it's important to do more research on the topic to protect society. The more harmful it appears to be, the more critical it is to fund research on it, and so their funding is perpetuated. By contrast, if use of a drug appears to have only benign effects, then why would the government bother spending more research money on it? That is the fractal, the seed crystal for the fractal structure of corruption in science that is so similar across the different disciplines. You could have substituted the word global warming for drug research uh, in that paragraph, and it would have fit exactly. You could substitute acid rain back in the day. It would fit exactly. And so we have a perfect fit for our Center for the Study of Science here in Ed Calabrese. He's a professor of toxicology at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst uh, and, and in the School of Public Health. He's the author of 12 books, that's a glutton for punishment, on toxicology and risk assessment, and has published over 800 articles uh, in the peer-reviewed scientific literature. Uh, he has been an advisor to EPA, uh, an acronym I don't recognize, and other federal agencies, as well as being a member of various National Academy of Sciences committees. Over the past 30 years, he has assessed the scientific foundations foundations of what's called the hormetic dose response, which I think he might explain a little bit of. It's the notion that is so commonsensical uh, that it's laughable that it wasn't sort of discovered or made known. Any of you who are taking chronic medication or medication for a chronic condition are taking advantage of the hormetic dose response. That little dose of a beta blocker keep you alive, extend your life. You take the whole jar with some alcohol and you might get yourself in some real trouble. So there are things in the environment that in low doses are very beneficial and in high doses are harmful. Consider sunlight, for example. And it was in discovering this and the hundreds of papers that he has written on it that he decided to visit the history of the government's regulatory paradigm and its scientific foundations of what's called the linearity no-dose threshold Ed is just a true gentleman and a scholar, and it's just an honor to have him here in the building giving us a talk. Ed. 
thanks very much, Pat. Thanks, every, everyone, for uh, showing up today. Um, I was actually struck with a couple of comments that, that Pat made before I kind of get into my talk. And I think he said the um, um, characterizing the LNT paradigm as, as, as obviously incorrect. And it's the subject of my presentation. And I'd actually have to say it wasn't so obvious to me. <laughs> I'd have to say that Pat mentioned that I wrote, uh, I've written 12 books on toxicology and risk assessment. And if you go back and you read everything that I wrote from my first book in 1978 and then follow it on up uh, until I really got into the current scheme, I was actually supportive of LNT. Um, I, I was a believer, okay? And, and I, I taught uh, toxicology and risk assessment for decades. I'm into my 41st year at the University of Massachusetts. I'd have to say for my first 25 years as a university professor teaching toxicology and risk assessment, um, I, I taught LNT as uh, one who strongly supported and believed LNT. Um, so it wasn't very obvious to me that it was wrong. And so it makes me wonder how insightful I actually am. <laughs> and, uh, and what actually, um, when did I fall off the apple cart and hit my head and, and somehow get some new look at life? And, and in many ways, um, this is a story of can you teach an old dog new tricks? And, and I'm, I'm hopefully uh, maybe an example that perhaps maybe you can. Um, but when did I fall off that apple cart? And when did I start thinking a little bit about uh, uh, the dose response in a different sort of a way? And maybe my journey um, to trying to understand the dose response might reflect somebody else's journey. I might encourage you to think a little bit more about it yourself. So um, essentially, uh, I would have to say that um, for, for me, more or less, it, it really evolved out of a, a situation in which um, I became reinterested in the topic of hormesis about 20 years after I was introduced to it as an undergraduate. By accident, I stumbled upon a biphasic dose response in which I treated some peppermint plants with a synthetic uh, growth inhibitor, and the plants at low dose were stimulated. And at high doses, they were inhibited. The professor thought that I had screwed up, I did something wrong, didn't follow his directions, um, wanted me to go over and, and uh, reproduce the study. Uh, I went back and, and did it over again and found out that I had made a barely probably a dilutional error in making up the original stock solution, gave them tenfold lower dose than they should have had, these peppermint plants. And when I kind of did it the way he wanted us to do it at higher doses and the way I kind of actually did it at lower doses, I got this biphasic dose response and, and had to repeat it uh, really at least 10 times over for this guy before he would believe it because the low dose stimulation was always very modest, only about 30 or 40%. 50% greater than the controls, and control had its own variability, and how do you know it wasn't variability, and you had to have strong study designs, more plants, more replications, and ultimately um, ultimately proved it to him and got it published. Never knew the term hormesis, just called it a low-dose stimulation, high-dose inhibition, and uh, eventually quit doing that and got into real toxicology, uh, pesticide toxicology, and other kinds of things, and followed that for almost 20 years. And then I got reintroduced to this concept in 1985, 
really changed my life and, and not really attacking LNT, but just trying to understand the biphasic dose response and how do you induce changes at low dose um, that may not be occurring on me uh, at, at high dose and, and, and fumbled along this uh, line and, and producing this not really, yeah, you could directly uh, contradict LNT with it, but I, I really wasn't doing that. I was really just trying to understand a, low do, a, a biphasic dose response relationship. And, and so um, it was really, for me, my kind of intellectual turning point was a paper I was writing on the history of the dose response, probably circa 2005. So I'm really well into my hormesis revival at this point, 20 years almost into it. And I'm writing this paper, and this, um, and I'm not sure what your style is when you write papers for, for um, publication, but, but I tend to um, have about five or six people. They may change depending on the presentation, but I, what I call friendly critics, people I send the manuscript to before I submit it for publication. So they'll basically um, give me critical feedback and, um, and basically um, help me so that I can eventually um, pass a peer review better than, I, better than I would have. And so this time, I was putting together a very comprehensive paper on the history of the, the dose response. And one of the friendly critics was a very, very well-established, uh, what I'll call a genotoxicologist. He, he writes me, and he tells me that, uh, that he felt that I, I was missing something in that manuscript, and that manuscript, uh, the, that part that I was missing was I hadn't really covered the life of uh, Herman Muller very well and his insight into the dose response. This guy was not an expert on Muller. I sure wasn't. And he said, but you, you really have to dig into this because he was really significant. That was his inherent gut feeling. And I said, well, this guy, this, my advisor, my, my friendly critic, is a really astute man. And I've trusted his opinion on many other papers. And I, so I put the paper on hold. And I said, I better learn all I can about Herman Muller. Now, what that meant for me, it kind of reflects who I am. Um, I read then, uh, I put that paper on hold for over a year. And I, I read uh, about two, maybe 300 papers that Muller got. I got most every paper Muller wrote from when he first published his, for, uh, his papers until he died. I put them in order and I went from early to late. And then I, I, I read a very excellent biography of him by one of his uh, last graduate students and read that a couple of times. I got his Nobel Prize speech and almost memorized it. I, I then began to get interested in the people that, that Muller knew and interacted with and, and looked into their lives. And, 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 and I came out of that actually um, much more educated as to, as to um, uh, Muller, uh, mutation, dose response, its, it's uh, impact to, to LNT, and it, and it really changed me, but it actually began to change me for the worst <laughs> because I, began, I, I uncovered things in this, in this uh, uh, new look that, uh, that I'm going to be sharing with you today. But I think this little long-winded introduction um, is important because it, is, it sets a context that um, even though this will become very 
critical of certain people that my intentions are, are, are they're not a witch hunt. They're really a search for what I, what for me anyways, is understanding. You can say it's search for truth. And, and in the process, sometimes uh, the search for truth, uh, uh, it's not a straight line. It involves people and their lives and their personalities and how they have their tug of wars together. And, and it's a bit like making sausage. It's, it's, not, it's not very pretty when you get into it. And, um, and, and it's a struggle to actually even know what the truth is. And a lot of, a lot of what I've written is based on fact. And hopefully I can, it'll be clear when I talk about that. But some of these historical analyses, they have some component of interpretation. And, um, and, and when you, whenever you have interpretation, it comes down to your interpretation. So I, I believe that we can certainly uh, agree on a whole set of facts. But there'll be some of my judgments that are interpretations, which I suspect that maybe mine alone, or maybe you might have your own, that sort of thing. And, and that should become evident in the course of, of this. And, 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 and I, I guess I'd also have to say that, that um, my way of looking at this is, is pretty dynamic in the sense that um, as new things come up, I've changed my, you know, refined my views and things of that nature, and as I think that one has to do. So with, with that sort of a intro, um, the title, when, when Pat in, uh, invited me to speak, I had no idea what the title was or how it would be presented. And, um, but when I saw it, The Search for Truth in Regulatory Science, I said, that's exactly what, I'm, what I think I'm trying to do here. Uh, and I thank Pat for, for uh, saying it so, writing it so, so eloquently. Um, because I, I really wouldn't have, have been that eloquent. Uh, I would have actually um, written it this way. Uh, I would have written it as uh, how LNT was born and sustained, and a story of mistakes, deceptions, um, and failed public policy. And uh, and that's what I meant by uh, when you take a look at truth, when you really peel away that that uh, bit of the onion and you, you you look, or you want to see how the sausage is made. Well, you know it's uh, 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 textbooks are written is in a straight line. But actually, the way the science comes and the way the human dynamic uh, comes to play with this, it's, it's really a lot of uh, mistakes, deceptions, failed policy, following wrong ideas, maybe not the best ideas. It's, it's, part of, it's the, human, the human element. And in, in this story today on, on uh, LNT, I have to share with you key players in this, uh, in this soap opera. It's a scientific soap opera. Um, and uh, maybe one day it'll make it to be on television. But there are, are some key players in this. And I'll just run, run them down and show you their pictures. It's uh, Herman Muller is the star. Um, uh, Kurt Stern, uh, important. Ernst Kasperi, the fly in the ointment guy. Delta Uphoff, um, pretty young graduate student who um, Tries really hard. Warren Weaver, sorry, Jim Crow, who was a uh, tried to be a graduate student with uh, with uh, Mueller at Texas. Before Mueller took off and went to Europe, and Crow ultimately would link up back with Mueller. Warren Weaver, um, he became the chair of the Bear Committee, the National Academy Committee that made the the major recommendation to go linear. 
Uh, George Beadle on that committee Nobel Prize winner. Bill Russell, another fly in the ointment guy, but on that uh, Bayer committee. Lewis Statler, the biggest pain that Mueller ever had, uh, as we'll talk about it. Barbara McClintock, the smartest person in the room. Um, uh, Timofit Rozovsky, um, kind of comparable to Mueller, uh, a, a Russian uh, move to, to Germany, a uh, great uh, radiation geneticist. Max Delbrecht, another, um, another Nobel Prize winner and worked with Rozovsky. And Edgar Altenberg, um, the, um, um, the best friend, Mueller's best friend, and when Mueller attempted to commit suicide in 1932, I'm not sure if anybody here knows anybody who attempted to commit suicide uh, and if they wrote a um, suicide note um, and who they wrote their note, their note to. Well, as it turns out, when Mueller attempted, he wasn't successful, obviously. The person that he wrote his, uh, his suicide note to uh, wasn't a family member. It was actually Edgar Altenberg. And Edgar was a high school friend, and Edgar went to Columbia with him, got a PhD with him, and ultimately was a great collaborator, um, a great friend, great confidant, and, and actually uh, um, a unique relationship with him and, and will play a, a role in the story. You should take a look at what our, our people look like. We have Herman Muller in his prime. We have Herman Muller getting his Nobel Prize. He's a little guy uh, when there's a tall uh, king of Sweden. We have uh, Kurt Stern, the... Uh, serious professor at Rochester in, in Berkeley, uh, the dapper uh, Ernst Kasperi, uh, we have Delta, we have Warren Weaver, um, we have Jim Crow. Jim Crow is the only person that I've actually spoken to in the cast of characters. Uh, George Beadle, uh, uh, who was a <coughs> graduate student with, uh, with um, uh, McClintock at, at Cornell. Bill Russell, um, his wife is still alive. Uh, Ernst uh, Lewis uh, Stadler, he may qualify as maybe the, the brightest in the room too. Uh, Barbara McClintock for sure, Nobel Prize winner, 83. Uh, Rozovsky, uh, Max Delbrook, and a young Edgar Altenberg. Now, LNT, where did it all begin? Well, it actually begins after Mueller publishes his paper, his famous paper in 1927 in Science, uh, claiming that he had just discovered the, uh, the artificial uh, induction, uh, artificial, well, the artificial transmutation of the gene. That's what he called it, the artificial transmutation of the gene, which he actually did with, um, claimed to have done with x-rays. And he called it the, it was really emphasizing the gene because other people had had used x-rays and other things to cause chromosomal rearrangements and aberrations and, and, and actually had, had caused some uh, trans, uh, you know, uh, transgenerational phenotypic changes. And, but, but Mueller was insistent that the significance had to be a gene change because gene changes were the key underlying mechanism for evolution. Mueller wasn't interested at all in LNT for LNT sake. Mueller was interested in the big prize, and the big prize was trying to come up with an explanation for the mechanism of evolution. He was a real geneticist, biologist. He wasn't into the environmental um, risk side at that point. He, he, he does become focused on that soon thereafter, but it's really, and, and throughout his life, was, was mostly interested in understanding the mechanism of evolution. Others were too. And, and basically what happened was 
the two physical chemists, um, Olson and, and uh, Lewis Gilbert, um, at, uh, at Berkeley decided to uh, uh, take Muller's findings, essentially, and try to transform this into uh, an explanation. And they, they felt that they had come up, could come up with an explanation for evolution if, in fact, if in fact X-rays are cosmic rays, essentially, uh, could, acted in a linear fashion for all species. And, and they proposed in an article in Nature in 1928 that, in fact, um, um, this was the mechanism of, uh, of evolution. It was, it was uh, cosmic rays and background radiation acting in a linear fashion based upon the research of Muller. And this was, uh, and, and they had to assume an LNT relationship. And so that was, that was the first reporting in it. It had nothing to do with risk assessment, everything to do with evolution. Um, Basically, Muller didn't agree with their interpretation. If you really looked at his control group and you tried to extrapolate back from his treatment data, then um, if, if this, uh, call it uh, mathematical and uh, extrapolations made any sense, then background radiation could only account for about 1 hundredth of, uh, of the mutation going on in the control group. So therefore, it didn't explain really almost anything. And so they, they essentially discounted the, uh, the Olson and uh, uh, Gilbert Lewis uh, um, theory. Gilbert Lewis, by the way, you all know Lewis acids and bases. That's the guy, okay? We all grew up with him in chemistry. He was um, he had a very speculative uh, um, way about him. Okay, now, essentially what happens with uh, LNT is that Muller, Muller was interested. If you read his science article, um, the one that he, he was first on, yeah, you'll be surprised, maybe shocked if you haven't looked at it, there is no data in that article. Muller uh, knows he's in a race for the big prize, and he has data on, on X-ray-induced mutation. Others are close to it. And so Muller, I don't know how he did it, but his connection was at Science, but he gets an article published in Science in July of 1927 talking about the great findings that he has and showing no data. Very, very interesting. Um, he did it. Um, and and uh, in it, in that article, he, he makes the claim that it's very small genetic changes. He introduces the term point mutation and, and, and essentially focuses in on the artificial transmutation of the gene. Now, his old advisor at, at, uh, at Columbia, Thomas Hunt Morgan, thought that he had just lost it because he had made some serious mistakes in the past and he was prone to a little bit of exaggeration. And he just, uh, in, in letters that, that Hunt um, Morgan wrote to others, he just knew that, that he didn't have, probably didn't have the goods um, to prove this and could be the end of his career. As it turns out, Muller did have the goods. He might not have had them at the time, but uh, I knew he had, he had completed at least two of his three experiments at that time. And, um, and so when he did uh, make the big presentation, which was at the Fifth International uh, Genetics Congress in Berlin, he, um, he delivered the goods, and he showed his evidence, and it was uh, essentially too much acclaim, and, and he became an international person almost overnight at this, uh, at this as a result of pre presenting his findings at the big Congress over in Berlin. 
Uh, now, his data, uh, his data initially had four, four doses in the first experiment. He didn't show linearity. In fact, he really showed a threshold. Um, the flow of dose really didn't show anything. And he, he changed his, his, uh, his fly model, reduced the doses from two to four, uh, ultimately showed his mutation, but the studies weren't strong enough to really talk about a dose-response relationship. Uh, and so the very next uh, student who was going to be working in his lab, he got the student to actually do a broader dose-response relationship. He got two students, actually. And they both uh, established that there was a linear dose-response for X-ray-induced mutation in their system at the high doses that they used. And so Muller, as a result of the two subsequent pieces of work coming out of his own lab, um, came to the conclusion that, in fact, um, as you can see, that the dose response for radiation-induced mutation was, was linear. And he, in fact, created the term called the proportionality rule in 1930. And so if you want to go back and look for linearity, you won't really find linearity so much. You will find the proportionality rule. And that's created by Muller. And, and, and that's where it actually crystallizes and goes forward. Now, interestingly, at the time, Muller, um, Muller was making his conclusion that there were, in fact, uh, mutations by looking at at uh, transgenerational phenotypic changes that he believed were caused by gene mutation, by gene mutation. He never really looked at the gene. He didn't have a lot of capacity to do this. He made an inference. He made an interpretation and assumption. Now, this woman, Barbara McClintock, who uh, gets a Nobel Prize for transpositional elements or jumping genes in 1983, 1929, she's, 1927, she got her PhD in, in corn genetics at Cornell. She's a cytogeneticist. Um, she develops a novel technique uh, that allows for a profoundly better resolution of um, chromosomal structure in 1929, and uh, profoundly better than, than what things were. Muller, at that stage with Drosophila, was not very good at all. Now, in 1931, this fellow, uh, Lewis Statler, who was also a plant geneticist, links up with, with McClintock, whom he knew from his travels to Cornell, brings her back to, to Columbia, uh, Missouri, and to study with him. And he's looking at x-rays and, um, and mutation in corn. By the way, I would tell you that Statler uh, published his findings on on uh, radiation-induced mutation in barley three months after, after Muller did. He was, the, he was one of the people that was in the race with Muller for the prize. Okay. So I'll, it'll all fit, fit in well, I think, at some point. So McClintock goes out. He's, he wants to show her his corn and all these uh, mutations he's inducing, and he wants to study uh, applications of this. She, she is now applying her new techniques to this. And she comes to the conclusion that, that Statler wasn't inducing mutations at all, that she could explain all his phenotypic changes by actually uh, X-ray-induced uh, deletions, uh, like punching holes in chromosomes, not small point mutations. And so he was resistant to this because, well, 
you know, he published in Science that his x-rays were inducing gene mutation just like Muller had. And so she and he duke it out in the summer of 31. And ultimately, she convinces him that his understanding of his own data is incorrect. And he eventually came to the conclusion that he really wasn't inducing gene mutation in his barley or his corn. He's actually causing trans generational phenotypic changes that were induced by large chromosomal changes um, that, were, that were heritable, but they were chromosomal changes, not, not gene mutations. And so he began to have, he had great, he had changed his own opinion on his own data, but then he began to have some serious doubts about Muller's interpretation. And so what happened was that um, he published a couple of papers really gent gently suggesting maybe that something else was going on. It wasn't gene mutation. And then he just said, ah, what the hell? 1932, he goes to Cornell at the Sixth International uh, Genetics Congress. While he and Muller are invited to give um, presentations on mutagenesis in the plenary session of this very big Congress, he announces that he didn't believe that Muller induced gene mutation in his Drosophila back in 1927, that he believed it was caused by, in fact, uh, uh, chromosomal rearrangements, massive damage, and, and that Muller's, Muller's data were fine, his interpretation was wrong. Now, interestingly with Muller, you might think this would have surprised Muller, shocked Muller, and it, and it did upset Muller, I will have to tell you. I mean, to go public, with your biggest experiment in this very, uh, very <laughs> excellent research is saying that you got it wrong. I'll go back to Altenberg. Altenberg is Muller's best friend. You know, best friends they have, they're good. Best friends can, they know all your, your disgusting qualities. They can tell you how wrong you are, how this you are, how that you are. They can tell you that you have body odor. They can do anything to you because they're your best friend. So guess what Muller's best friend told him almost immediately after he published his paper in Science? He says, you know, it's very possible that, 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 you, that you didn't induce gene mutations. It's very possible you were taking a bazooka to those chromosomes and blasting major holes in those. And, and in fact, uh, um, Muller recognized this as a possibility. And Muller, when he went to the AAAS meeting in... Um, in December of 1927 in Nashville, actually raised this and said that this was a possibility and how he was addressing it. He goes to the National Academy in April of 1928, and he kind of repeats it there again, giving credit to Altenberg for raising that question. Now, Muller tries to address this by saying, we didn't knock these genes out and delete them, and I'll tell you why, because, because there, we, he had observed something called a reverse mutation in his studies. Reverse mutation meant that he took these uh, Drosophila that had red eyes and he could hit them with radiation. Next generation, he could see white-eyed Drosophila. Then he could take those white-eyed Drosophila, hit them with radiation, pop them back to red-eyed Drosophila. He could pass this on for generations. He said, if a deletion was taking place, you could never see that. The, the genes must be intact. And so I'm reading this and I'm saying, Huh, that's a good argument. He's, that, that's interesting. He's trying to address this. He addressed that really three years before the criticisms came out from, from, um, from Stadler. 
Well, and then he published a very long paper, a very Muller-like, 82-page paper in 1930, uh, laying out all his data for this. As it turns out, <clears throat> um, the battle began in 1932, really, between Statler and Muller. And it's going to be on, did Muller actually do what he said he did? And uh, did he actually induce gene mutation? Because what's happening next in this game of life over here, we talked about that, um, and that is um, um, people began to look at this and they began to find ways in which you could actually modify the functioning of a gene uh, without causing a, 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 a mutation in that gene and change red eyes to white and white to red and do the same thing to corn and to barley and to other things. And you could do this with a uh, positional effect by essentially you could have a crossing over, change a gene from one chromosome to another, put it next to chromosome on a, a gene, another chromosome. That new gene can, can regulate what goes on in the one that's next to it. And, and you, could get, you could get what Muller was, was looking at with, without actually uh, uh, having a gene change. And so the, these two guys were both very bright. And they decided that, and they were, you know, Muller, Muller had some, some um, not so attractive attributes in personality. But in his debate with, uh, in, in big battle with, with Statler, he was, he was unbelievably uh, excellent in his rigor and his uh, behavior, his language. Was, it was the best learning experience one could ever have, watching the two smartest people in the room, Muller and Stadler, over 25 years, seeing who was right on this issue. And, and, they would, and it was all fought out in the literature. And, and, and I'd have to say that I, I went through 40 years of toxicology and never understood their battle, never knew of their battle. And it's only in the last year or so that I've gone back to, to relive the Muller-Statler, um, you know, like Ali Frazier battles. Um, but it was like these two guys. And it was, it was like a chess match, the two, two great researchers. And you know, if you know, if you played a lot of chess and you watch people who are really good, what happens is, in fact, uh, you have uh, the person who wins makes slightly better moves consistently. Slightly better moves, slightly better moves, slightly better. By the time 50 or 60 or 70 moves are up, um, the degrees of freedom are really reduced in the person who's not making the better moves, and it gets cornered and squashed. And that's what was happening to Muller in the battle between Statler and Muller. Statler and Muller. Statler was a little bit better in his designs and his thought process and his experiments and his next steps. It's very interesting to see this. And that's no disrespect for Muller, whose experiments and his interpretations. I mean, his, he, I could see why he was so good. He was up against somebody who was slightly better, slightly better over time, boxed Muller in. And, and was ultimately, what, what happened was that Statler established that Muller did not have the evidence to prove what he asserted in that 1927 paper. Now, that's very significant because LNT is going to be um, actually based on that paper. It's based upon uh, the assumption of, a, of point mutations by, by ionizing radiation. Um, and it, it flows from that. And in fact, um, three people, uh, this. Uh, 
Timofit, Brzozowski, Zimmer, and Delbruck and over in Germany in the mid-1930s, and Muller was with them for two years, actually. They created this uh, single-hit model, uh, trying to apply um, target theory that was coming out of um, radiation biology uh, to the Muller-type data with the mutation in Drosophila. And, and ultimately, they, they, they made basic assumptions that, that uh, assuming that Muller's interpretations were correct, and they published their work in 1935, and Zimmer develops the mathematics a little bit later, and uh, the next slide kind of shows uh, a whole bunch of lines, but and when you only have one hit, the model shows a linear dose response. And, and, that's, and, and so they, they now had connected to the proportionality rule a mechanism, and the mechanism was one hit. And so this was, this was a significant advance, but at the same time, Muller is in a fight for his intellectual and research life with this guy, Statler, and he's losing. But there's dynamics going on at, at other, in other ways. Now, what happens is that um, in the world of cytogenetics, we already know a little bit about, about um, McClintock, but this guy, Theodosius uh, Painter, who was a colleague of Muller at University of Texas, 1933-34, he develops his own cytogenetic advances uh, on, um, uh, like, like McClintock did. And now you could see what McClintock was applying to, uh, to plants, he was now applying to Drosophila. And you could see that, that in fact, the, that at these very high doses that Muller was using, that it was, you were principally uh, causing major chromosomal rearrangements and damage. You weren't causing point mutations. And, and this is a real serious issue. Um, now, I would have to say that if Muller had been so lucky as to have had excellent cytogenetics available to him in 1927, I'm betting that Muller never would have been so aggressive with his uh, pushing his idea that he would have actually claimed what he did claim, because he could not have done that at the time. He, he was given the, the freedom to make the expression that he had induced the artificial transmutation of the gene because he didn't have the data that could discredit him. He, he linked his, his data with a, with a mechanism, and so he had two different concepts and one, and one term. And that was his problem. Um, and the term was uh, that, that he, uh, he essentially had, had these transgenerational changes, and it was all due to a gene mutation. Um, and, and that was, and, and, and in the euphoria, since it had taken three decades to get this far, people bought into this. And it was, uh, they, 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 they just bought into it. And it was, uh, cha was changing their thought process without them being necessarily very thoughtful. Now, but Muller was taking his licks during the 1930s. And he was being boxed in by, by Statler and others who were challenging him. Now, Muller realized that he's in trouble. And he's fighting for his legacy at this particular point. It's my interpretation. So what does Muller do? He's a smart guy. So he, he decides, he, I'm going to keep losing if I'm going to keep trying to fight with Stadler on this particular point. 
So he comes up with a new idea. And his new idea was, I can, I can get support for linearity, and I can get support for, for the gene mutation theory if we have a totally different experiment. And the experiment was going to be taking a look at whether a mutation is best explained by um, total dose or dose rate. Muller was assuming that there was a linear dose response and that every single bit of damage was actually cumulative and it was irreversible. And therefore, if that was the case, then the dose response would have to be linear all the way down to a single little mutation. And so, and so he wanted to see um, if, you could, if, if damage was best predicted by dose rate or by total dose. Uh, dose rate could open up the possibility that there may be uh, um, a threshold. And so he wanted to discredit dose rate, wanted to prove total dose. So he got a graduate student at the University of Edinburgh to work with him on this. His name is Ray Chahori. Thus, this dissertation in 1939. I got the dissertation. I got the comments from Muller and the other <laughs> committee members. It's actually quite interesting. And, uh, and Ray Chahori's data supported Muller's interpretation right down the line. It was, uh, he showed, based on this dissertation, that it was dose, total dose and not dose rate. It supported Muller. This was, a, this was like a, a life jacket. It was a, throwing an inner tube to a drowning uh, Muller. Uh, and it, and it, it was very significant. Uh, because of the war and other things, Rachel Horry really publishes his stuff in 1944. Um, Muller gets his Nobel Prize in 46. In Muller's Nobel Prize, uh, Ray Chahori, his work is really uh, uh, emphasized in, the, in his Nobel Prize uh, um, in a very positive way. For a graduate student just finishing a dissertation, <laughs> given high praise in a Nobel Prize uh, speed lecture, that's actually uh, amazing. So, so basically, um, the argument had really shifted in terms of what was supporting uh, LNT and what was supporting the gene interpretation. Now, at the same time, Muller's really duking things out with, with Statler. Uh, and Muller has now moved back to the United States he, on some uh, journey from, from Texas, where he was so upset and left, went to Germany. Um, the Nazis took over in, in 33. Muller left in 34, went to the Soviet Union. Um, Muller is having, having uh, challenged Lysenko. He escaped with his life and made it to Edinburgh. And with the start of World War II, um, because Muller had certain political um, baggage, you might say, could not get a job in the, in the United States. The only place that would offer him a job was in my town. Amherst, Massachusetts, <laughs> at Amherst College, uh, one, um, actually one mile from where I live. And he got the job because one of his, his old graduate students, Harold Plow, uh, he was a graduate student friend at, uh, at Columbia. And so they knew each other well. And, and because faculty were leaving, being drafted, and so forth, uh, Muller was a little bit older and was able to fit in and stayed at, at Amherst College from 1940 to 1945. And so um, the. Uh, so basically, when Mueller came, came back to, to this country, what, what happened was that uh, the war was starting. And, and, and so what, what happened there, oh, I, before I, I go a little bit further, I would have to tell you that, that I, I went back now. I, I, when I got Ray Chahori's dissertation, um, I read it, and I, and I studied his dissertation. And I found lots of flaws in that dissertation. 
Uh, the, the control groups are pretty inadequate. It had major statistical errors. Um, the, um, um, the sample size was modest. He, he really had poor documentation for different methods, no reporting of lethal clusters, female sterility, sex ratios, age of males. He even changed the Drosophila fly strain halfway through the study. The control group of the, the new strain was one-third of the original control group. No justification for what he did. There was lots of questions with this. And, and, and in the write-up from Mueller and others on the committee, they didn't raise any of these objections. And I'm saying, Mueller's really a bright guy. Why didn't Mueller criticize this guy's dissertation? He had almost no dissertation. The only, the only, the only real criticism was by this guy, a very famous mathematician, uh, uh, Haldane, who was on the committee, who found major statistical weaknesses. It's the only criticism. And I, my interpretation is not factual. My interpretation is that Mueller gave Rachel Horry's uh, dissertation a pass because he needed it. Now, that may not be correct, but I'm trying to figure out how the smartest guy in the room, uh, much better than me at critiquing you know, genetic dissertations, didn't see half of what I saw in terms of limitations. Um, but this becomes a very strong support given the past 15 years of being battered by Statler and other people on his gene interpretation. So what happens is this study is kind of weak. So it comes back to this country, World War II starting, and the Manhattan Project comes to be. Kurt Stern at Rochester gets a big contract, as well as uh, this guy, John, Don Charles, to take a look at low-dose radiation. Kurt Stern uh, gets Mueller hired as a paid consultant to him on this project. Um, now, what came out of this Rochester work was actually two things. Um, a mouse study that used over 400,000 mice and it yielded no meaningful publications. It's actually pretty amazing. You go back into it. And part of it was that Charles was a perfectionist. He would never, um, never it was never done, never ready, never perfect, never this, never that. Frustrated everybody. Um, the war is over, still no publications. Um, five years after the war is over, no publications. Ten years after the war, no publications. Actually, ten years after the war is over, uh, Don Charles commits suicide, resigns from the university, commits suicide in a Ma Manhattan hotel, leaves a, a terrible uh, suicide note, and um, his life was falling apart. He's a great researcher, but he, he, he had his quirky aspects. But nothing significant came out of the 400,000 mice in the Manhattan Project. But something did come out of the Drosophila work, and that was Stern's work. Now, and, and it would be very significant, and it would affect why we believe and why I came to believe in LNT so many years ago. Now, there were two components to Stern's work. One was, but it was really, there was, a, there was a, an acute study component and a chronic one. It was really a much uh, larger, integrative, total dose, dose rate study. It was really to do the Rachel Horry study over, but in a much bigger, better fashion with uh, um, essentially um, better quality control, more technical assistance. Uh, uh, everything was better um, in theory. Now, as it turns out, the, the first study was done by this guy, Warren Spencer, who is a PhD from Ohio State in, in Drosophila genetics. He's good, a good, excellent re researcher. Um, he does this work, and he shows a linear dose response um, with uh, 
acute doses. Now, this becomes a very famous study. However, now I, I got Muller's uh, seven-page review of this in, in letters to those, those people. I looked at all Muller's criticisms, and I, and I looked at Stern's criticism. I looked at everything, actually. And I find that these people, they're not critical at all. I mean, I'm not a geneticist, but I'm seeing things that, that, that they're not picking out at all. They, they lousy temperature control, really. Uh, they had inconsistent X-ray instrument calibration. They, they poorly matched controls with treatment groups on experimental days. Uh, they, they basically uh, combined treatments with the same total dose, but different dose rates, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, anything that, that and, and most of these were taking place at the lower doses that they were using, never brought out by reviewers, never brought out by Muller in, in his seven-page review of this person's work. Um, and, I, you know, 40, 60 years later, I'm the one who finds that, right? Uh, but then, but that was beautiful be, for them because, because uh, Spence's work was showing that it was linear. It's what they wanted to hear, actually. Then this guy, Ernst Kasperi, you've seen his picture. He comes in, and he's doing the chronic side to this study. And he comes in in August of 1946 to his boss, which is Kurt Stern, and says, hate to tell you this, Kurt, but... Uh, I have a threshold, and, and it's not what, what they were expecting. So Kurt Stern decides, he says, I'm not accepting you know, your interpretation or your work. Your work is screwed up. Why is it screwed up, Kurt? Because your control group uh, has a problem. Your control group is, is actually aberrantly high. Now, maybe that's statistically you just had an aberrantly high value because, you know, um, you know, biological systems vary. Maybe your control group is just uh, aberrantly high. But the aberrantly high control group uh, in the low-dose zone is going to ultimately lead to perhaps a threshold rather than a linear response. And so he, he rejected his interpretation. This is a problem because you have nothing coming out of the, the Don Charles work, and now you have this key... Thing showing that in fact uh, it might be, in fact it might be a threshold, and this is uh, difficult because this is a much better study overall than the Ray Chahari study, and so the, things could turn on this point because Muller's gene interpretation thing is not going well, and uh, and now you have the the Ray Chahari study being challenged. So what happened is that um, I'll give I'll give Kasperi some credit. He dug in. And he went into the literature and he found a whole bunch of studies that supported his view that, in fact, his control group was not aberrant. It was actually right in the middle where it should be. And I'll give Stern his credit. He backed down. It was actually the way it should be. Two smart people duking it out, and their decisions are based on data. Actually, it was really good. However, these people believed in LNT. Okay? So if the data didn't support the LNT interpretation, and you wanted that to happen, then what are you going to do next? Now, this, this shows, in my opinion, either Stern's uh, creativity or his deviousness or both. And, and I don't know really who had the idea, but I'm kind of thinking it was, may have been Stern. So what they did was, and this is a surprise to me, when you read the discussion of the Kasperi study, now, this is a really excellent study 
it's actually far better than the than the um, than the Stern one because it had taken advantage. It had much better quality control. Much, it took advantage of what they learned from the earlier thing. Didn't have didn't have the the technical problems that the earlier study did. And so um, what Stern and Kasperi wrote in their discussion, the, almost the entire discussion was here are our data and you should not take them seriously until we can figure out why our data differed from the data that, that occurred in the earlier acute study by Warren Spencer. Now they didn't do it the reverse way. They could have said, this is uh, follow Kasperi and we'll try to figure about uh, Spencer, no. They, they held the line on you can't accept that which was supporting threshold until you can try to figure out why these two, two studies differed. Well, I can tell you that those two studies had at least 25 different methodological differences. There was no possible way that you could actually try to resolve them in a simple fashion. So, so the argument that they set up in that paper was a straw man argument. It, it could, could not have been resolved. So why would somebody, two people, submit an article to a top journal, Genetics, and say, here are our data, don't accept them? I'm not sure that reviewers would have liked to have read that. I'm not sure that the editor-in-chief would have actually uh, published the paper. Oh, well, wait, wait, wait a minute. Maybe the editor-in-chief would have accepted it if the editor-in-chief was a co-author on the paper. And that happened to be Kurt Stern. And, and was that paper actually sent out for peer review? Well, I'm not absolutely sure that it wasn't, but I can tell you that those two papers, um, the one with Spencer, the one with, with Kasperi, were both sent out on the same day for publication on November 25, 1947. They're both about 70 pages long. They're big papers, a lot of details in those papers. They were published in the first week in January of 1948. So let's see the timing here. We have Thanksgiving and Christmas in between. We have peer reviews, very complicated things. And they somehow made it through peer review, the holidays, no changes, and published five, five weeks after they were submitted for publication. I have bought all Kurt Stern's papers. I bought the journal papers. I've tried to get all their past peer reviews. I can't find any evidence that it was, either paper was peer reviewed. And I don't believe that they were, be that as it may. So they were able to get the papers out the way they were. And they were, in my opinion, were actually able to, to neutralize um, the data that, that in fact, um, Stern had. Now, the interesting thing is that I knew that Mueller was a consultant on this project, okay? And I'm saying to myself, and I knew that Mueller gave his Nobel Prize speech on December 12, 1946. And in that speech, he is like Khrushchev pounding his, his, uh, his shoe on the podium at the UN. Mueller is saying the same thing. You cannot continue to stay with threshold. You have to go to a linear dose response threshold, no evidence to support it. You have to go to, LN, to the LNT. And I'm saying, I just got through reading all about this Kasperi study. The Kasperi study was the best study that was going around. It was really supported a threshold. Mueller was a consultant on that. Did Mueller see these data? He couldn't have seen these data. Because if he'd seen these data, he never would have said that with such, with such veracity, with such confidence. I mean, I mean, no doubt in his mind. This was it. I said, so obviously, 
He had not seen these data. I've consulted for enough industry, government, and so forth. They don't show you everything. They show the consultants what they want to show them. So I figured Mullick could not have seen that. Just couldn't. But I didn't know. So what did I do? I decided to um, um, get as much information, all their correspondence, everything that could possibly be, who would write to them, back and forth, so forth and so on. One Friday afternoon, <laughs> I uh, came back later, sorry, about 6 o'clock. I got this, this treasure trove of stuff sent to me by one of the libraries. And it was 700 pages or 800 pages of Muller and Stern, and Stern and Muller, Casperia, this one and that one and so forth. So I called my wife and said, I'm not going to be home for a while. And so, so I just stayed there until about 10 o'clock at night. I went through every single letter, reading it all. And I found, I found the smoking gun. I found that, that Stern had wrote to Muller. Uh, Muller had left Amherst to go to, to um, uh, Indiana. And he said, Casperi's uh, writing up his thing. Would you mind reviewing it for us? Muller is back, yeah, I'll do that. Um, we're still working on it. Are you, are you OK with it? Yeah, I'll still review it. Then finally, on November 6th, he sends them, he sends a letter. Here's the Casperi report. Uh, hope you can review it. On December, November 12th, he writes back, I got it. I've looked it over. Uh, I'm really upset because this is showing a linear dose response. It's not supposed to be a linear dose response. Uh, there's got to be a mistake someplace. You've got to get this guy. Uh, you've got to get this. You've got to get more money so that you can replicate this work. We, this, this, this is significant here. And by the way, Casperi is a good research. I'm not attacking Casperi, um, but, but you really have to go and look at this. Okay, so this, so I knew at that point that Mueller had seen the data. He said, I'll get back my details, criticisms with you before I take off on my next trip to Europe. The next trip was going to be his Nobel Prize trip. He never got the, the review back until five weeks after the Nobel Prize. And, uh, <clears throat> well, as it turns out, so I knew that he, that he knew that, that a threshold was possible. It said in the paper that it was a, a tolerance threshold in the conclusion. And, um, and that's what was sent to Mueller. And so when, when Mueller gets to, to Stockholm, um, there was no possibility the threshold existed. No way. We are shifting over to an LNT, yet he had just seen the best study to date ever. I said, how could he do this? Now, whether he, he somehow saw some new problem with this between then and you know, no, November 12th and uh, December 12th, I don't know, maybe he did. Uh, I said, but, uh, or maybe he, maybe he, uh, you know, what was going on with Mueller? Was he just being devious and deceptive? Did he had a viewpoint that he wanted to get across? Um, and so I, on November 14th, 1947, he writes his seven or eight or nine page criticism of the Casperi work. And he actually has no fundamental criticisms other than it has to be reproduced all over again. And uh, we have to get to the bottom of this. And he had not changed his opinion. He had not changed. So he had not changed his opinion between in that month or two-month period. And so I came to the conclusion, I'm not sure what your conclusion was, but I came to the conclusion that Mueller was actually being um, dishonest to his audience. He could have said, he might have believed in LNT. I'll say that he did believe in LNT. But he could have said to that audience, you know, LNT is a big deal. I think that LNT exists. Uh, but, but it's unresolved at the present time. It needs more study. Instead of saying, and I don't know how he could have said, there's absolutely no possibility for a threshold. And maybe threshold was real. It, it was enough of a possibility for him to recommend to Stern to get more money and to spend a whole extra year of researching on it. 
it was that much of a possibility. So that got my interest, okay, on LNT, and it began to make me understand that this search for truth might be like trying to figure out how uh, sausage is made, okay, because it was not that great. So as it turns out, they then published their paper, which I believe was also deception, obfuscation, whatever you, really bizarre, that discussion I, I mentioned to you. And so then two years later, not much action is happening. Two years later, you know what happens? So Muller writes a couple of papers in the, in the genetics literature, and he, uh, well, actually, I'm going to back up one bit. What happens is that, is that uh, yeah, what, <laughs> what happens, I'm, I'm shifting here. What, what happens is that uh, uh, Stern takes Muller's advice. And Stern decides that he's going to replicate the study. So that's the way science should be. So he gets money, it gets Delta, she's going to replicate the study. So she replicates the, Stern, the uh, Kasperi study. So what, what happens to Delta? Her control group is, is, uh, is uh, aberrantly low. And so she does two experiments, and it's aberrantly low. She writes up this, the paper, um, and, and Muller and, and her, oh my goodness. Muller and her uh, are uh, dismay. They, they cannot accept their work. They cannot accept the data. Why can't they accept data? Because, because uh, essentially it's, it's just uh, it, it's so out of whack, they, they, they couldn't accept it, even if it was supporting an LNT. Uh, and so they went to, uh, uh, they, in the write-up that was classified, they sent it to the Atomic Energy Commission, and they said that... Um, uh, they, Kurt Stern blamed it on investigator bias. So was he blaming it on himself, or was he blaming it on Delta? He didn't mention Delta's name, but I have a feeling that, that Kurt wasn't blaming himself for the investigator bias. And so, but, so that's actually in the, uh, the AEC publication. Um, so what happened uh, is that uh, they went to Mueller and they said, who's right on this? Is um, Delta's control group, uh, Stern's, con I mean, um, Kasperi? And they knew that in his duking it out with, 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 uh, with uh, Statler, that, that, that he's really trying to understand spontaneous mutations and background of spontaneous mutation. And I never quite understood why Muller was, had such a fetish on studying spontaneous mutation while he was at Amherst College until I went back in and understood that he was fighting with Statler. And he had this volume, voluminous literature on spontaneous mutation in the same model that, that uh, Kasperi and, and uh, Delta were using. And so what happened was that he said, actually, he said, my data and the data in literature supports Kasperi. And Delta's control groups are aberrant and should not be used. I have a whole series of their communications with each other. It's really solid. Two years later, he goes into the literature and he says, you can't use Kasperi's work because his control group was reading aberrantly high. You have to go with Delta up off. 1950. And I'm saying, how the hell did he say that? It's, it's, it's con conflicting everything that I know. So I come up with a new paper, actually a new letter that I rediscovered actually about a week ago that I've had, but I never made the temporal connection. And in it, 
he's writing to Stern, and he said, there's this paper in science that just came out by this guy, Robley Evans, who's this MIT professor, very uh, top-level guy in radiation. And Evans is, is attacking LNT, and he's using the Kasperi data that supported a threshold, and we, got, we have to just get to Evans, and we have to crush this, more or less, me characterizing his letter. You have to write to him. I think you should write to him instead of me. We have to do this. Now, Robley Evans had donated his paper to MIT, but they haven't organized his papers, and so I can't get into them at the present time um, to, to see did he ever write this and so forth. However, very soon after, Muller writes these two papers in which he reverses himself on Kasperi's control, reverses himself on Delta Upoff, uh, frankly lies in the literature. Okay, frankly lies in the literature. And then ultimately, he was sustaining his, his own reputation um, for essentially being, I believe, dishonest, and, and basically furthering the, uh, the issue of, uh, of LNT. And then this brings us to the next high point, and that is the creation of the Bear Committee uh, in 1955 um, by the National Academy of Sciences that was to look at this issue of, uh, of LNT. And, uh, and what should be the, the dose-response relationship? And, um, and I've been talking, I have such a long story to tell, and I'm told that I have less than five minutes, and I'm really just beginning to, to, to crack the egg and making an omelet here. And, um, and, and so I'm going to uh, probably apologize to you that, to tell you that I should come back and give a part two. What you could do is... <laughs> Uh, that everything was essentially classified and there was very little discussion uh, adopting the... Uh, well, what I, well, what I can tell you for the, just to give you the high point on the, L, on the LNT, it's, it's easy enough. And what I find most interesting is it's easy enough, you know, when, when one person lies, it's okay because who's going to discover it? Whenever two people lie and share in that lie, well, then one could rat, rat on the other one. Well, what happens if you have 14 people who are agreeing to lie? And, and actually, that is what happened with the National Academy of Sciences. I mean, this is, this is from a psychological point of view, this is actually pretty amazing. That, that you could go from, you know, I mean, why didn't Stern turn in Muller for his deceptive comments in his Nobel Prize, right? Why didn't Kasperi say something after Muller made his dishonest comments? Eventually, they must have all something on each other, or they're in collusion with each other, or they're just fundamentally ignorant. Or maybe it's all, or some components of all. But, but making this mega jump to, from these three people, and I have to throw Delta in there too, because I mean, she must have known what was going on, four people, and then eventually making this, this transition up to the National Academy of Sciences. And what was, well, now what was their dishonesty in this process? Because I'm calling them out too in this process. Um, theirs was different. Theirs was uh, a different type of dishonesty, but in my opinion, if you've read my stuff, you know that it qualifies as, um, as scientific misconduct. Um, and it was, it was a desire to, um, to not share the information they generated 
with the, uh, and to misrepresent the data that they had generated in their official publications um, so as to change the interpretation of those publications so as to promote the policy that they wanted. It's perfect. Um, um, now, who wants to fight amongst themselves? I mean, I mean it's, it's, it's an interesting mess. Um, I hope I have whet your appetite enough so that you become a, a questioner and a doubter and one who will dig deeply into this. Uh, there is um, uh, almost everything that I, that I had believed in over my first 25 years in terms of LNT, in terms of Muller's work, in terms of the credibility of science, in terms of the, the authenticity of the National Academy, the, the, the Nobel Prize winning uh, heroes. Um, it's really affected my, uh, my, uh, how I see life, how I see science, how I see people. And, and for me, it's not bad. It's just, you know, when you've had, um, when you see weaknesses in people, it's, it's best that you know about them uh, because then that way you can kind of deal with it better. And, and I believe that all of us have been, um, have been lied to. The whole field has been lied to. The field cannot address it. I send my papers to the journals like genetics, mutation research, environmental and molecular mutagenesis talk science sciences, and they will not actually send my papers out for review. And you might think that, and that, if you've read my papers, I think, on the topic detailed ones, you know that they're an attempt to be extremely detailed, extremely documented. You can disagree with them, uh, for sure. People do. But that's, that's part of the process. But they're, they're not trivial. They're not trivial, trivial at all. And they're not dealing with, with insignificant points. But I can tell you that it is very difficult to, to um, address these issues and to have them fairly debated um, within the literature, within the power structure that we have to work in. And, uh, and really, this could be a six-hour presentation. Um, and maybe next time it could be. But, but I'll take any questions that you have. Let me, uh, that did the first observation, my privilege. What you have to understand is the context of the biological effects of uh, atomic radiation. Does that, that bear? Yep, yep bear. that's right. Yep. The, the, this was going on during the height of atmospheric testing of thermonuclear weapons. And the world was completely convinced that fallout was going to cause all kinds of mutations everywhere, very small amounts of strontium-90, et cetera. And so I believe that the Bayer Committee uh, was deluded by noble cause corruption. They thought they were saving the world. And that to do that, they had to use um, the model that they used, which was that even very, very, very small amounts of ionizing radiation are extremely genetically dangerous. Do you have any, any feel for that? Yeah, I do, actually. Uh, I, I, that's partially true, in my opinion. I, I would have to say that they were advocating for LNT well before the, there was an atomic bomb. And they were trying to push doses as low as possible, really, even in the late 19, 1930s. They weren't winning the battle 
the gen radiation geneticists, but they had a view that was strong and early on. So it wasn't quite that. Another alternative view, <clears throat> complementary, not alternative, complementary view, and that is that as I've published in the literature, I, I, I have uh, essentially a number of these, these individuals who are uh, uh, claiming in their own letters to each other that they would not mind stretching a point, um, exaggerating risks to enhance their uh, opportunity to get uh, research funding. And uh, that never happens. It never happens. And so, but, but, but it's in their own words. And so I, I think that, you know, that, that kind of, there's an altruistic point of view. I suspect, I, I believe that they were trying to save the world. I agree with, with that. On the other hand, I believe they were trying to enhance their own agenda. And, and the two things can, can happen in an individual. I mean, people are complicated. And, and, and we, it's probably true for all of us. I'm not trying to come up with a holier-than-thou perspective from myself either. And that is that we're, we're all complicated individuals. And, um, and at the same time, they were being manipulated. If you go into the transcripts of the first day of this Bear One Committee, you have Warren Weaver essentially um, bribing the, the, uh, these members that if this, if this uh, comes out the way we hope it will, there'll be copious general funding for the radiation genetics community. And he's already been funding them for the last 15 years. In the last something like five or six years before that, he had given $4 million in research money to Muller's group at, um, at Indiana. $4 million in the early 1950s, that's a lot of money. I mean, I don't know what that projects out today, but he was funding essentially anyone who could collect money, they were funding it. And in fact, the interesting thing is that the Rockefeller Foundation funded that Bear One Committee. And, and, and the person who was on, who was the president of the Rockefeller Institute for Medical Research was Detlef Bronk. And he was also the president of the National Academy at the time. So Bronk was funding himself back and forth, back and forth. He chose a non-geneticist to chair that committee, his research manager, director, Warren Weaver, who was the person funding all those geneticists. And I will also point out to you that even though that was um, billed as an all-star, you know, dream team of geneticists, at least seven of them had never published a paper on, uh, on mutation. No, nothing on radiation-induced mutation. They, they, were, they were not experts. They were claimed to be experts. They were, they were experts in some aspects of genetics, for sure, not denying that. But this is a specific type of knowledge of mutation and dose response and and, and actually what they were there for was to, was to validate and coronate the LNT that was being pushed by, by Mueller. It was, it was not objective. Mueller shouldn't have even been on that committee. He had a bias to preserve his own legacy. I mean, it, it just gets actually worse the more you know about it. Questions? Uh, do we have a microphone for questions? I can talk. Okay, go ahead. I've got a question and a, and a comment. Uh, my question is pretty basic, and I suspect I'm not the only person that has it. What does LNT stand for? I think the L might be linear, but I don't know what the end of the T is. Oh, okay. Linear non-threshold. What? Linear non-threshold. Non 
threshold. Okay. I'm sorry. I should have. Should have. The LNT model presupposes that the first photon of ionizing radiation is capable. The LNT model says that the first photon of ionizing radiation is as damaging as the billionth. Yeah, if it's turned on, and I was trying to imply that, but anyway. Uh, the, I'm a sociologist, and I think what you're doing is the sociology of science, which is fine with me. Uh, I'm saying this to you to say, I don't know if you've read much sociology of science, um, but you may want to, and you may also want to uh, then publish what you're doing in a journal of sociology where it will get some attention, probably, um, because, because that's what it is. Well, I'd have to tell you that I, I have probably read almost nothing on the sociology of science. I think that's a really interesting suggestion. And, um, and so I'll, I'll look into that. Appreciate it. Thank you, Herb Rose. Um, it shows, I think, that Mueller was irresponsible on so many levels. Um, one of which, and maybe some might consider the least of which, was to his graduate student who uh, did some sloppy research. And uh, if I had done anything like that when I was in graduate school, I would have never gotten my degree. But um, what happened to that graduate student is one question I have. And the other question is, how much longer would he have had to work going back to the lab to uh, correct all those flaws and insufficiencies in his research. Okay, the, the graduate student work, um, based upon um, reconstructing of, because I got their letters between each other, um, I learned that Muller helped him in the, in the framing of the concept and in the initial uh, concept of the design. Then Muller took off to go on vacation, travel, wherever he went. And, and from what I can piece together from the letters, I do not believe that Muller was present at any time during the conduct of those experiments. And so I have a feeling that, that, the, that the student- but He reviewed the results. He reviewed the results. So, so I, I think that if you, as we all can, can I'm, everybody had a different experience going through graduate school. My advisor was, was always uh, one you could go in and argue and debate and show data on a day-to-day -day basis with and fine-tune different things perhaps. Um, I'm not sure how it would have been if my advisor had taken off of the entire duration of my experiment. Uh, it would have been pretty much, um, I might not have been in good shape. And so, uh, and so I have a feeling that, that um, you know, Mueller, um, at, and then at the same time, I, I'd also have to say this was 1938, 39. Uh, he's, I, I, the context might, might have been war in, you know, war in Europe, um, uh, different anxieties that were taking over people. How that affected anything, I don't know. But, but whatever it was, um, this guy, um, 
He was an Indian graduate student. He eventually went back to India. Uh, lots of pleading with Mullah to write letters and to say positive things about his dissertation so he can get a job back in India. Uh, he dies in the, uh, uh, a few years ago, and there was, I followed his career, I read. He, he had a, a, what I'd call a, a successful, good career. I didn't study his, all his scientific papers, but I, I read enough to realize that, that I, I felt he, he was a credible scientist in his own way. And um, um, he certainly was on his own, and maybe he became a better scientist because Mala was in there, maybe, but maybe Mala shouldn't have used his data as much as he used it, um, that sort of thing. It's complicated, it speaks to your question. <laughs> I'm just following on to the last uh, group of, of sentences. You said a, a series of journals that you sent some articles to and that they didn't peer review them. And I'm trying to find the logic that follows from that. Are you saying because they weren't peer reviewed, they weren't published, they refused to listen to what you're saying? Is that where are you going? Uh, yes. What I was saying is that there, there, there is um, See, I'm challenging uh, some icons in the field. Um, Kurt Stern and, and uh, Crow and uh, Muller, these are editors of genetics and, and other journals. And, and so I'm trying to go back into those journals and, and people, who had, people who actually understand gene mutation, the history of gene mutation. They, they grew up in that. Uh, I'm not a geneticist, but I feel as though what I'm writing, I have to pass through their scrutiny, because I'm, I'm poking them in the eye, and I want to get their criticism. And the first couple of papers that I published actually went through their criticism. And then, then basically something happened, because I got papers in, in environmental and molecular mutagenesis. I had the editor-in-chief say that their, members of their editorial board went over every single thing I said, checked out every this and this and this and this, and they, and they, they, they did accept it and publish it, got something in talk sciences and the like. But the, the next generation of papers, um, during that period of time also, I did try to get it into genetics, went back and forth with the editor numerous times, and uh, that editor, um, um, they just felt that I was being totally disrespectful for a highly um, admired, revered icons in their field. And, 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 and I was told one time when I submitted a paper to mutation research that they actually pulled the, the uh, editorial board and they decided that they wouldn't send the paper out for review. So, so, it's, it's, so I have to seek alternative, high-level other journals um, for publication for some of these things. And so it makes it difficult. And, and also to follow on on what you said, um, that you think they might be stretching the truth to get funding. Um, that's kind of common. You've heard about this going on maybe in climate change or the study of neonicotinoids or the thinning of the ozone, the whole. Uh, people try to get funding, and I feel your pain, but I also see that to my dismay, it's also going on in many other areas of science. That's it's probably true. Uh, I was wondering, so I'm not a geneticist, uh, um, but I'm wondering, 
science kind of has this self-correcting wonderfulness about it. It may be too slow for policy things, but I mean, we are at the level now where we can measure per photon what the effect is um, on, a, on a molecule or a gene. So from that perspective of seeing, you can do a, a measurement that is predictive um, in a way that technology kind of wouldn't let it be in the past, do you see positive effects of that? Of the people, you know, you can actually have the data at the resolution that can then make predictions to kind of irrefutably um, prove your point. Uh, the big question that she raises is, is um, the self-correctingness of science. And, and I'd have to say that, that um, I think it's out for, uh, um, it, it, it's science, I, I, I believe is self-correcting is regulatory science self-correcting. To me, that's not actually known. Um, because the, the, these challenges that I have given to, um, I'm going to say to regulatory agencies, um, you never know what goes on in an organization if you're not allowed to look inside that sort of thing. And so, and so I, I don't know how it all works. I, I can say one time that I, I had a conference at, at Amherst and invited a high-level person from EPA, and it was a hormesis conference. And, and he told me that, well, you won't, probably don't know this, but, but uh, two years ago, we had a, an entire you know, session, day, whatever it was, two days. Um, out in Cincinnati, all our toxicologists were internally discussing what you guys are doing on hormesis. I was totally unaware of that. Now, how they came to do that, what they came to learn, what their decisions were, were never published, were never shared with anyone. It was kind of a, a little thing. So the, to the extent that, that this little revolution that, that I'm part of on challenging LNT is impacting the thinking of regulatory agencies that are very um, um, difficult to understand what's going on, uh, what's significant, what other political pressures that they have. They, they don't show their cards too often. I, I was somewhat, uh, I was greatly pleased two years ago when the NRC called for a reevaluation of LNT and a potential substitution of it with hormesis and listed it out in the Federal Register for comments. And uh, now it's been two years almost since uh, the closing of those comment states, and there's been no decision recommendation by the NRC. And so about eight or 900 people submitted comments. I read all eight or 900. Only about a dozen of them said that I should be sent to jail. Um, but, uh, but, but, you know, it was, uh, it was from the general public could respond to the Federal Register, you know, that sort of thing. So, but I think it's uh, the jury's out on whether, on, on, what, on whether regulatory science is self-correcting or whether it's guided by ideology. One more. Uh, I'd like to um, just close the loop here on, this is all uh, has been about radiation. And uh, I started my career at the National Academy of Sciences with the Safe Drinking Water Committee. So this is gonna be about chemicals. And one of the, char there was a, this was a massive committee structure. There were toxicologists there, radiation biologists. And, uh, and the, uh, the radiation, I, I, Ed has told me that two members of the Bayer panel were 
is part of this committee structure. And a couple of people, David Rawl and David Hull, were there to strongly advocate for LNT for chemicals. Well, at this time, uh, in, right up to now, the way chemicals were regulated is that a, a, the lowest dose that didn't cause an effect in a, in a study was divided by a pretty huge safety factor, and uh, that, was the, that was the regulatory level. So when this was presented to the toxicologists, and they were the, they were the cream of the crop in the, in, in the country, uh, there was furious debates. They didn't want this. They didn't agree with it. There were arguments, I mean, real heated arguments. And at the end of the day... Excuse me, they, they didn't want the LNT or they didn't... Right, right, they did not agree that that was the way that toxicology should go. And at the, at the end of the day, uh, they, they very reluctantly endorsed LNT. There were, there were six or seven sort of supporting tenants that were, that were listed in that very first volume, none of which are true today. And, and, and so LNT was endorsed. Now the second Safe Drinking Water Committee, this is the one that was chaired by John Duell. Uh, some of you may know who he recently uh, uh, died, but he was the, the, really the dean of American toxicology. They rescinded it. They re, this is little known, but they rescinded it. They said, there's a lot of different models that can be used, and we don't endorse LNT. But meanwhile, EPA was already using LNT for their regulations, and this wasn't going to make any difference to them. And then the next Safe Drinking Water Committee, the third one, they, they re-endorsed a bit very reluctantly. And this is why we're burdened now with uh, LNT for chemicals as well, despite a wealth of knowledge. Uh, about low-dose effects on, on uh, living systems, both for chemicals as well as radiation. And uh, all of this data demonstrates that there is a threshold for, for these effects. What do you say? Sure, we'll give, we'll give David Schneer one. Um, as, as the regulator in the drinking water program at the time, we... Uh, we did discuss this problem, and the general pressure at the time was to regulate anything that could be found in raw water, even if it had never been found in, in finished water. And so there was a preponderance of political pressure to uh, have a zero-risk environment as far as drinking water came uh, along. And, and for that reason, it was very easy to simply use the LNT approach. However, we had branch chiefs, toxicology branch chiefs, who wanted to push hormesis, Bill Marcus being one of them. We had arsenic as a good example of one of these, and we could not get it through the rest of the agency. And so the, the, the difficulties, Ed, that you're talking about are real. They're continuing, uh, but they've been around for a long time, and it's going to take a significant change in, uh, well, my view is that personnel is policy, and it will take a change in personnel before we can see a change in that policy. May I ask a, a brief follow-on to Ed, based upon what you said? Is there a biphasic dose response to arsenic? In my Hormesis database, I have quite a few examples of that. Arsenic? Yes, for many different endpoints. And yet, Bush too was hung out to dry when basically he was using uh, 
sort of a biphasic model? Well, it's, um, let's put it this way. There is um, the, the low-dose biphasic dose response. The, the low-dose stimulation doesn't have to be protective. It, it, it can, there are many circumstances where a low-dose stimulation uh, can, be, um, can be undesirable. For example, most um, anti-cancer drugs uh, in studies that we've looked at, uh, at low doses, they, they enhance the proliferation of the tumor cells. Yep. Um, and uh, lots of other examples, and found actually low doses of uh, penicillin and streptomycin and the like, at low doses with harmful bacteria, they can stimulate the proliferation of the harmful bacteria. And so it can follow up. Those would be undesirable from our point of view. They may be desirable from the tumor's point of view, tumor cell's point of view, or the, or the microbe's point of view. But, but so things have to be understood in a, and put into a context and, and, and let that knowledge um, or the facts um, help us survive better as a society. It's a, to try to deny the science because of an ideology is not actually serving us. It's, you really need to be led by the science. And, um, and, and that's, that's the problem with, a, with a, um, an ideology-driven science. Okay. We are going to wrap up. We have a reception in the Winter Garden. Please tend and um, chat with Ed and yourselves and everything. And thank you very, very much for coming. And thank you, Ed. Uh, it's a very expansive subject. I, couldn't get it into an hour and 15 minutes. I apologize to everybody uh, that I, I couldn't fit it in. Um, but um, Well, I've published a whole series of things. Anybody who wants my papers, I can send you PDFs uh, just to email me or email, email Pat. We can get them to you. But in a wide range of journals, my stuff is in. So I can get them to you if you are interested. All right. Let us go. Thank you.